Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Alien Crash Site. This week's episode is a bit of a departure. It's a special feature. A few weeks ago, the ACS podcast took a brief hiatus to host an interplanetary panel discussion on complex time, and I want to share that conversation with you in case you were unable to attend. As usual, if you visit aliencrashsite.org, you can watch the video version of this panel, and you'll also find show notes and bonus materials. The event was titled Coordination on Time Between Worlds. It was co-presented by SFI's Interplanetary Project and the New School Policy and Design for Outer Space as part of the 2021 Venice Architecture Biennale. The central question for the Biennale this year is how will we live together? And this conversation was an attempt to answer that question with time in mind. Philosophers and physicists from Aristotle to Carlo Rovelli have deeply considered the nature of time, but given the scale of social technical systems required for any off-Earth endeavor, this age-old question requires much broader input. Time for the universe is very different than time for a complex living system. There are multiple overlapping, converging, often conflicting timescales at play, and therefore there are a multitude of rates at which things come together and fall apart. Additionally, our experience of time varies tremendously with the perspective we take on any given subject, so there are myriad questions to examine. Are we talking about the lifespan of an organism or an economy? How do we manage a planet at scale in times of peace versus in times of crisis? What are the timescales for a crisis like a global viral outbreak versus global warming? We have to begin to think about all of the communication difficulties that will no doubt arise as we begin to distribute ourselves between planetary bodies. And then there are even bigger fundamental questions to ask as well. Like how long does it take to go from a lifeless planet to a planet with life? How long does it take for that life to become complex? And furthermore, how long does it take for a complex life form to evolve into a deeply reflective life form that now seeks to explore beyond the bounds of its own planet? How can technology help us in that endeavor? How will the biology-technology intersection allow us to extend ourselves in space, yes, but also in time? SFI President David Krakauer is moderating this conversation. Panelists include Laura McGuire, who is a researcher at Jelly.io, Zara Mermelek, a researcher at NASA, Jeffrey West, the preeminent expert on scaling phenomena, and Sean Carroll, because frankly, we can't talk about time without a card-carrying physicist at the table, right? So with that, I'm going to turn this over to David. I am Caitlin McShay. This is Alien Crash Site. Please enjoy this brief respite from the zone. You're safe for now. Until next time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, welcome, everybody. I'm looking forward to this. It's a wonderful panel. I'm not going to belabor the introductions. I just want to say that I'm talking to two physicists who've gone rogue, uh, whose work extends far beyond the boundaries of their disciplines in really creative ways, which is fantastic, and a cognitive scientist who works on large software projects. So it's a very diverse panel, and we're going to cover all sorts of topics from the most fundamental to, to more applied. And uh, just to give you a bit of background of the topics that I, I sort of want to cover, I want to cover the nature of time itself. You know, what is it? At SFI, we work on what we call complex time, which is the time that emerges in complex systems, uh, but we need to understand what time in physics is as well, always the background to much of what we discuss. Architectures of time, you know, the architectures of the body, of the brain, of colonies, of cities and societies, how that all works out, those multiple timescales that come together uh, to make those structures possible. Um, entropy, uh, this whole, this foundational law, that plays out in all of complex systems and in simple systems pertaining to the accumulation of damage or error um, or disorder more generally, and how we should think about that in society, which I'm sure most of you would share my opinion, is going through a rather entropic phase. Um, 
Of course, issues of technology um, that accelerate the perception of time, our experience of time, even in the limit of some foolish ideas around singularities, which I hope we'll cover, uh, where we might disappear entirely in favor of a form of mechanized intelligence that travels at the speed of light in some sense. And how we as a society should develop collectively intuitions for this much more complicated, accelerated world that we're living in, in order to coordinate as a society to solve problems where we don't have very much time left <laughs> uh, in relation to population, climate, social disorder, inequality, and all the things that we worry about and should worry about. Um, so that's the scope, so it's pretty broad. So I'm gonna jump right in with a question that goes to all panelists, and I'll ask it kind of in the order that I see you on my screen, so this is not. Um, and that's really, what is, I think we all feel, right, that the conception of time that we brought, were brought up with, uh, a clock uh, that regulates all time across all space is just too simple. And I wanna get a, just a quick summary from all of you of how you think about the foundational concept of time, why it's important in your respective domains of endeavor and introduce also while you're doing it, the project that you're primarily working in that touches on the issue of time. So Jeffrey, since you're right next to me over there <laughs> in my Zoom screen, why don't you go first? <clears throat> Okay, so um, let me uh, just say uh, just a few words about my, the way I sort of think about time, both um, personally and um, as, a, as a researcher. Um, so, you know, in a way I like to think of it as in sort of a continuum between simplicity of time and the complexity of time. And the simplicity of time is what I think of as is, is really what physics is about, is um, even though we have, uh, we have, of course, the original sort of absolute time of Newton, that there's this sort of ticking clock that in the background of everything, um, and um, that somehow is intimately related to causal events, um, a, a, um, an effect following a cause um, in a very regular fashion, but in a very, but, but of course, getting manifested in our daily lives with what we call clocks of um, uh, the earth spinning on its axis and the earth moving around its sun as defining for us our sort of common time. And that's kind of simple time. And then there's the other extreme of the complexity of time, which goes in the most extreme from kind of um, personal time, psychological time, and uh, I, I was actually thinking about this yesterday and I recalled a kind of apocryphal story about Einstein who got um, fed up with people asking him on talk shows, so to speak, what is um, explained in sort of uh, uh, one sentence relativity. And he got fed up. So he said, okay, um, you know, when you're sitting with a pretty girl for two hours, it feels like one minute. But if you sit on a stove for one minute, it feels like two hours. That's relativity. And it's sort of like, you know, th there's this personal time where things that are enjoyable go very quickly and things that are um, painful take, uh, seem to last forever, so to speak. So there's that extreme. And then there's the kind of time that many of us work with that you've uh, referred to in terms of complexity, 
and what we sometimes call emergent time. And that is systems that are highly complex and have their own time scales. And all of life is like that. We have multiple time scales from the microscopic all the way to um, ecological and evolutionary times. And then we have social time. We have the time that is generated by our own interactions. And all of these play off in the background of the simple time, but they have their own time associated with it. So that social time, because of the positive feedback and in social interactions, increasing kind of ideas, making new ideas, increasing the interaction rate, time goes faster and the pace of life systematically and has systematically increased. So it's, um, so I see time, just as part of this introductory comment, as this continuum from something that's very simple. And in physics, we write the symbol T as if that sort of encapsulates time uh, to this ext extraordinary complexity that covers macro times that go from microscopic to macroscopic, biologically, but also in terms of our social life. But they have very different characteristics. Uh, time slows down the bigger you are in life, but time uh, gets faster the bigger you are, namely cities. Big cities go faster than small ones, uh, and so on. So maybe as we go on, we can elaborate on some of these things. But I think we, we time is not just subtle, but it is, it, it has this extraordinary rich fabric. Um, Great, thank you, Jeffrey. So I'm gonna, I kind of play chess with my Zoom tiles. I'm now gonna move like the bishop on a diagonal to Zara. <laughs> so you're, we're also, <laughs> and uh, how about you? Thank you, David. Hi, I'm Zara Mirmalik. Um, and what is foundational about time to me? So, to speak to what I look at with time. I'm interested in time as a technology that's used to coordinate work among people and machines that are bound by institutional systems, but are physically remote from one another. And my time with this type of time um, is grounded in work with an interplanetary work system that was set up to coordinate work amongst humans and robots between Earth and Mars. And this basic statement already introduces multiple temporalities. Um, and it's a case that allows us to consider how many assumptions we have about time, um, how much we have to think about time more when we're dealing with two sites on different axial rotations that are working in the same production timeline set up by an institution that's running a time work relationship that's been around for over a hundred years. So I, I will just hold it to that uh, at this time. Thank you. Great, thank you, Zara. So now I'm gonna move as the queen piece <laughs> and move along to Sean over there. Thank you, David. Yeah, so as like Jeffrey, I want to distinguish between two different aspects of time that are relevant to how I think about it. I mean, at the simplest level, time is just a label on the universe. We think about reality as this three-dimensional space that we see all around us, and it's full of stuff located in space, tables and chairs, planets and puppies. puppies. And it happens over and over again, right? The world occurs over and over again. And 
time is a label on those different moments in the history of the universe. So when you say the panel discussion is at 12 noon, we had a long discussion about this actually, trying to figure out whether it was noon or midnight, but we ultimately agreed there was a time when we were gonna have the panel discussion. And I think that makes sense to everybody. Then the other aspect is this more generative aspect. We think about the flow of time or the passage of time. Uh, if time were merely a label on some coordinate in space-time, you wouldn't have any difference between the past and future. But of course, in our everyday conception of the world, there's an enormous difference between past and future. We think that the past is done. You can't affect it. We think that choices I make right now might have effects in the future. So that's the arrow of time. And ultimately, I do think it is also explicable in terms of underlying physical phenomena, uh, mostly the increase of entropy since the Big Bang. Our universe is like a little wind-up toy that was totally wound up 14 billion years ago and has been decaying away ever since. So to me, all the interesting complex stuff that Jeffrey and Zara and Laura are talking about are examples of what happens when you let entropy increase in a very, very big system. Wonderful. And last but not least, night move, actually, for where I am. <laughs> Laura. Thank you. So my name is Laura McGuire. I am a cognitive systems engineer and researcher who studies human performance in high risk and high consequence type environments. And so in my world, I think about time in many different senses. Uh, for a large portion of my career, I was a practitioner that was actually working in some of these worlds and in the natural resource industries. And so these are very production-oriented domains, you know, harvesting timber in the northern boreal forest or building wind farms in uh, rural Texas. They are very high tempo and extraordinarily time pressured and very tightly sequenced series of activities that has to take place across a wide variety of players, each of which operates on very different timescales. For example, you know, the workers on the tools, they will plan and adjust their work on a day-to-day -day or even an hour-to-hour -hour basis, depending on tactical logistics of how the work needs to take place or the weather shifting, uh, all the way up to legislators who might incentivize investments in green power projects or environmental regulators who approve these kinds of project proposals. That's work that can take decades to come to fruition. And so during this kind of time working across these different work domains, it can be very interested in this, this large scale distributed coordination across time, uh, particularly as it relates to risk and to catastrophic failure. And so what I found across these domains and others is that even when they're highly engineered and highly orchestrated work systems, the work is being carried out by professionals who are coping with conditions of complexity, of ambiguity, of time pressure and uncertainty. And so inevitably, like Zara, as you pull the thread on this, you very quickly come to a place where uh, we're introducing technology to help to cope with multiple time spans, with accelerating paces of work, um, and with keeping pace with the speed at which automated systems actually work. Uh, and uh, like Zara's work, uh, there's an enormous body of research within cognitive systems engineering, resilience engineering, human machine teaming that says 
the when you introduce technology into this uh, this systems that are operating at speed and at scale, you introduce a whole host of additional complexities and failure modes. And so, given oh, given that space exploration and certainly off-Earth habitation is only possible as a technology-mediated experience. Uh, you know, the work that I've been doing around critical digital infrastructure and coordination across time and space is very relevant to this discussion on complex time. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody. So let me, um, so it's interesting listening to you all, what is immediately apparent, right, is this there's a clock. The clock is an invention. It coordinates in time. We have already had mechanisms to coordinate in space, maps, for example. Um, but the clock is also a tool for physics thought experiments, because we're all familiar with Einstein's thought experiments with clocks. And the key idea here is something that Sean touched on, which I want you to talk about, Sean, which is the flow of time, the arrow of time, um, that just to remind everyone, and I guess you will, the fundamental laws of physics have no such thing in them, right? The classical laws of physics, you can go back and forwards in time, it doesn't matter. And, um, and yet our experience is very counter to that. And I want you to set up the groundwork for that because I'd like everyone to think about this issue of the flow of time and entropy increase, which is in some sense the foundational problem that society faces at scale. So Sean, hour of time. Yeah, so it is an interesting fact that the puzzle of the arrow of time was only invented because of progress in physics. Uh, if you were Aristotle, if you were long before Newton, you wouldn't have worried about why the past is different from the future. That was just part of the fundamental fabric of reality. But then, like you say, we came across what we thought were fundamental equations of uh, physics that tell us how the world works. Newton's laws, but then you know other versions later on, Maxwell's equations, Einstein's equation of general relativity, the Schrodinger equation of quantum mechanics. All of these equations have the feature that they don't distinguish between motion to the past and motion to the future. So why is our experience of the everyday world drenched in a gigantic difference between the past and the future? And the answer is, like I said, because entropy is increasing. So entropy is a way of characterizing the disorderliness, the messiness of a system. If you're very, very high entropy, then you're in equilibrium, right? Think of the milk being completely mixed in to the coffee cup. There's nowhere for it to go. You can sip that milk there in the coffee cup, it will stay that way forever. Or a, a box of gas with the gas completely filling the box. Low entropy is a special situation. The cream and the coffee are separate. All the gas is in one side of the box or something like that. And very, very naturally, it will spread out and move toward equilibrium. So low entropy, like we had at the beginning of the universe 14 billion years ago, is a kind of orderliness. And we're moving toward high entropy gradually. It will take billions of more years to get there. Um, and I do think there's two things to say. One is that that is responsible for a lot of dramatic, a lot of dramatic aspects of how time works in our lives. The fact that you remember the past and not the future. So you have photographs of the past. You have no photographs of the future. The fact that you can causally influence the future and the past. These are all impressions that we have because we live in a world of incomplete information. We do not see the exact state of the world. And at this macroscopic scale to which we have access, entropy is increasing and that gives us a differential handle on the past and the future. But the other thing is, I, I don't like 
the characterization of increasing entropy as somehow our enemy or the job of organisms or societies to fight against entropy increasing. I think it's exactly the opposite, as a matter of fact. I think that it is the fact that entropy is increasing that enables all of these wonderful phenomena. If entropy were not increasing, we would lack the resource to make complex systems, to think, to act, to causally impact the universe, etc. We'd be in equilibrium or we'd be like some very simple pendulum that was just rocking back and forth. So I want to rehabilitate the reputation that entropy has around here. Entropy is a good thing. We should be happy that it's increasing. With that <laughs> sort of um, Pollyanna-ish perspective on entropy, um, I want to go to Zara because there's entropy as physicists think about it, as Sean is describing it. But there's also sort of common garden variety entropies which just come out of simple statistical reasoning, which is that there are many more ways of being wrong than right, right? And as someone dealing with complex projects, I imagine maintaining some state of order across all those time zones is precisely the problem. I mean, would you address issues about what goes wrong in, in the projects that you've overseen in coordinating two planets? Thank you. I, I was it was on my mind, please um, intersect entropy and work systems for me. Uh, and you've given me that. It, it's hard to compress the notion of entropy into something as small as a work system when looking at this uh, in terms of scale. So I'll, I think use the really solid vehicle of the human being and extend human being to include culture. Um, in some conversations, culture will immediately come to mind as that which is related to national identity, geography on earth. Um, and if I can lend you the interpretation that comes to my mind and the one that I use in, in looking at work systems in time, culture is associated with professional culture. So if we think of groups of people who are working together, many of whom have trained and learned to communicate in accordance with their professional culture. So take a team of multidisciplinary personnel, scientists who study what appears to be similar, but in fact has very specific distinctions and put them on earth or leave them on earth actually, and have them communicate with their counterparts on Mars. So the counterparts of course were designed, invented, conceived, entrained with human time, but they themselves are not human. This is a question about a relationship between humans and machines whether the machine has a different sense of time given that it's on another planet. And I, I absolutely look to those who can speak to time in the universe to say more about how a robot, how we think about robots thinking about time or processing time when on Mars. And then I'll come back to the local and say that when you have this or teams of scientists with different disciplinary backgrounds, you bring to mind that they come from different places. 
So when we worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers mission in Southern California, local time was Pacific time. To communicate with the science community and others at large, we used UTC time. We also had two different time zones, so to speak, on Mars. And across these multiple markers of time, individuals were required to do the translation between these times. So I'm not presenting the answers to managing these translations. I'm hoping to present how complicated these translations are for us to all think about and offer comments on. But did they go, I have to ask you, did they go horribly wrong? Well, from a human-centered perspective, uh, I count as wrong when the individual has to absorb the infrastructure maintenance. So if you set up an organization that's intended to support people to reach a certain production goal, with science, it's knowledge production, and you need uh, dozens of scientists to work together who are actually not supported in those translations of time, I would say, well, uh, you've now asked these individuals who are there to do analytical processing on data received from Mars. You're actually also giving them this additional workload of having to translate time. Now, there's no failure in the respect that the rovers lasted for years beyond what they'd planned and data has been acquired, it's been shared, uh, it, it continues to be examined. So it's not a traditional notion of failure, but one might say that we have um, opportunity for more imaginative systems, questions uh, that come out of that project. Thank you. I mean, Zara's, I'm going to turn to you, Jeffrey, now, because Zara's example touches on something I know you've thought a lot about in relation to scaling, which is, the difference between the scaling of technology, informational systems, cities, or what have you, and biology. And as you get larger, you sort of slow down in biology, but as you get larger in the informational realm, you get faster. And I'm just, could you just talk about that, the foundational issues related to that? And the, we'll get to, I think later, the implications of that discrepancy in terms of our long-term survival. So just the sort of scaling of these two different domains. Oh. Sure. Yes. No. It's um, as I said in my, you know, my little introductory words, uh, that um, you know we have these extraordinary timescales in biology, but from the microscopic up to the macroscopic. But what is remarkable is that uh, there's a systematic regularity to the way those timescales um, actually oh, yeah. scale across organisms. So just. Uh, just to keep the conversation very simple, just if we take all mammals, um, of course, a, a mouse doesn't live for very long, um, but a whale may live, or a blue whale may live for well over 120 years. Um, and uh, so there are these different timescales, but everything in the whale relative to the mouse is slowed down in a systematic sort of predictable way following some sort of very general simple mathematical laws that actually come about because of the underlying constraints 
of the way energy and information has to be distributed in the system. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of amazing, actually, that um, they, not, rates decrease as you get bigger and times expand, but they do it in a way um, that various things remain the same. So, for example, um, if you look at the number of heartbeats in a lifespan of a mouse, it's pretty much the same as it is in a, in a, in a whale, as it is in a rhinoceros, or it is in, in, a, in a dog. So the same number of heartbeats. And so you, you sort of also have this kind of weird uh, speculation that maybe uh, in terms of the experience of life, all the life history events are the same in each of those organisms. They're, they're born, uh, they grow, they mature, they have offspring, uh, they live for a while, then they die. That's our life, basically. And, uh, but, but everything gets compressed in a systematic way. So you might ask that even though a mouse only lives a couple of years and a whale 120 years, their experience, so to speak, is pretty much the same. So there's this extraordinary regularity. And that is, uh, that, and, and that is reflected in what you just remarked, that the slowing down, the bigger you are. So time in biology slows down with size systematically. But it's completely the opposite in terms of our social life. The bigger the community is, the bigger the number of people interacting, the bigger the social network, the faster everything goes. And that is, has its origins in this uh, kind of positive feedback that goes on between people. When A talks to B, B talks to C, C talks back to A, we build on each other. We create ideas, most of which are not of interesting to other people, but we create ideas and we speed up life by doing so. And so that gets reflected in the rate of innovation. Innovation gets faster, but life in general gets faster. The general pace of life gets faster. And uh, one of the big issues <clears throat> is um, that uh, that leads to the question of is how open-ended can that be? Can life get really any faster? Um, and certainly today, uh, we're reaching a point on the planet where everybody feels that they're on this accelerating treadmill and uh, can barely keep up with things. And so um, there's this huge dichotomy that somehow when we broke away from co-evolving with the rest of the biosphere, when we discovered language, we communicated, uh, and we started um, uh, uh, innovating as a collective, forming communities and then cities and so on. In so doing, breaking away from biology, we introduced um, maybe even into the universe, this accelerating pace of life rather than this uh, slowing down of the pace. And the slowing down of the pace of life plays an important role in the long-term sustainability of biology. It's not an accident that life has been able to sustain itself for well over a billion years, a couple of billion years, uh, but it's not clear that socioeconomic life can sustain itself for more than a few thousand years. And that's the experiment we're all undergoing now. So I think that's a fundamental question. It's a, it's a truly existential question. And it is the, uh, you know, the origin of many of the issues that we're facing today on the planet. And I, I do want to come, I want to use that, <clears throat> we'll come back to some of these issues. That divergence seems to be a part of this new form of entropy, the social. Uh, that we all feel how our time scales of cognition, social interaction, engage with a technology which is accelerating. And I think this is very much, Laura, the world you've studied. And I'm just wondering, 
if you could comment on that, that discrepancy between technological and human cognitive time and the kinds of entropy, social software that it generates. Yeah, well, this is such an interesting, so many different threads uh, to kind of pull on here, because I think what, what you're talking about, Jeffrey, in the sense of, you know, as we get bigger, things are getting faster, really relates to what Zara was talking about, which is these cognitive complexities, this cognitive overhead that's involved in uh, dealing with faster tempos, with more uncertainty, with more emergent, unexpected, unanticipated types of problems and, and uh, scenarios that we might face, particularly as we start to go out into these realms that are less known, we, we have more uh, more uncertainty around the kinds of conditions we're going to place people or technologies into and how those things are going to react. Um, you know, uh, Sean's very Pollyannish, I think you called it, David, uh, perspective on, on entropy. I, I actually gravitate towards that in the sense of what this means if we look at the world as being fully dynamic, if we look at it as constantly changing, as systems degrading, what that means is coupled with this idea of these social systems and these cognitive complexities is that we need to design for adaptation. We need to design for humans in these systems to be able to better sense the world to understand what those changing trajectories, what that changing uh, velocity of uh, the world around them might mean for their goals and purposes. Uh, and we need to design these tools and technologies so that they're better team players to be able to take advantage of both the capacities of humans to understand context, to be able to synthesize in real time what these mean, uh, as well as the capabilities of technologies to have higher speeds of processing, greater information processing capabilities. Um, so as this plays out in our in software systems, one of the things that I will say is that there's been a fundamental shift in, in software engineering over the last sort of 10 to 12 years that a lot of people are very unfamiliar with. And this shift away from kind of an agile method on-premises method of hosting software to moving these systems into the cloud and being able to continuously deploy, continuously update and maintain and manage these systems is this fundamental shift that has allowed us to take advantage of a lot of these capabilities, but also introduces incredible uh, new kinds of complexities and risks. It's kind of the, the shift is, is like uh, you know, instead of taking your car into a shop and having an oil change there, it's like changing the oil on the car while you're driving 100 miles an hour down the highway. And this, this is, is problematic because we are increasingly shifting a lot of society's critical digital infrastructure, things like 911 call routing systems, electronic health records, communication, surveillance systems, all of these kinds of uh, critical global infrastructure onto these, these uh, systems that are now operating at uh, high, more increased speeds and scales than we've seen ever before. So it really comes back to, to take advantage of the, these capabilities 
in the face of entropy means we have to design for adaptation, we have to design for um, helping humans and machines cope jointly with these increasing complexities. Thank you, Laura. Actually, that right away takes me to use our, because I quote you, <laughs> and you say somewhere, um, and maybe this is precisely what Laura is calling for, that we need to rethink the relationship between classical clock time and work time. I think that is a, one of your sentences. And so presumably you, you've had to deal with this. I mean, you're doing these missions with NASA that have all of the characteristics that Laura just described. And from where I watch them on television, they seem to go really well. Now, of course, I know what happens behind closed doors, but uh, what sorts of inventions have you come up with to deal with precisely that clock time, work time, uh, outdated notion? So one of the benefits of experience, such as NASA has now for decades, coordinated missions and rehearsed and then performed and then rehearsed and performed the coordination of time across centers uh, in order to meet production goals. And then of course, the coordination of time for a launch uh, for communicating with persons on the International Space Station, robots, satellites, etc. When I came across the puzzle of time on the Mars mission, it was an it was a it was a starting question for me as to why, in such an inventive space, there wasn't an alternative suggestion for clock time. Uh, I don't think I'm, um, I don't think I have a conflict with the physics of time, but it, it seems that there's a, a lot of opportunity still for thinking about that relationship between time and physics and time and action as humans carry it out. When I, the work that I do takes a qualitative approach. So one thing that I need and have to look for is time to develop with teams. Um, I very, I'm aware of how well people can do things when the pressure is on. Um, what I look for is additional development time. So rather than putting something together in a few months based on a pattern that we know works, I look for multi-year development time and then developing amongst the group, their conceptions of time, their interpretations of it, looking for the conflicts. And, and at the heart of this is an ethos of building something that doesn't come from one individual. So I don't, I have no notion of authoring a new time. I do believe in facilitating and with a group potentially developing alternatives to traditional clock time, uh, which is of course one reason why I was very um, interested in, in speaking with everybody here and um, yeah, talking more about this. Thank you, Tara. Sean, this is actually brings in an interest I know of yours and Jeffrey's actually, which is hierarchies of time that complex systems have multiple huge number of timescales. 
And um, part of what Zara's talking about is that. And um, talk a little bit about that complication to time. Yeah, I mean, this is a wonderful aspect of the whole Santa Fe-ness of this whole question because physicists, bless their hearts, um, like to simplify things and look at things where the relative parameters describing a system are more or less univalent. What I mean is physicists are always talking about the time scale of a process, you know, the time scale for the Higgs boson to decay, the time scale for the Earth to go around the sun. In the real world, when you have complex systems, uh, you don't have a single time scale. You have many, many things going on at different time scales. I, I was interested in listening to Zara and Laura because this coordination problem is something that as a physicist, I don't think about that often. It's a very kind of human complex system thing. Uh, it did remind me of the wonderful book by Peter Gallison, uh, Einstein's Clocks and Poincaré's Maps, where he argues that a big part of Einstein formulating the special theory of relativity was that he was working in a patent office at a time when the primary thing to patent were clocks. So different parts of Europe could coordinate themselves so that the trains could arrive on time and you knew when that was happening. Um, and this all builds up from atoms and chemicals that have a universal time scale, like the, any given chemical, any given molecule will vibrate at a fixed physically calculable rate. Um, and then two things happen when that builds up to an organism or a society. One is uh, it becomes less predictable. I think as you already said, David, you know, at the human scale, we're not very good at predicting how long it will take us to write our paper or book manuscript or whatever, or even you know, drive to meet our friends somewhere else in the city. We're, we're very bad at this, at this planning. Uh, but the other thing is that there's this amplification of the time scales that all of the time scales as Jeffrey is the world's expert at, so I won't go on too long about it, but all of the time scales of fundamental physics are short, roughly speaking, right? The atoms and molecules vibrate very quickly, the particles decay, etc. And then you get many, many, many of them together, Avogadro's number of these things together, and then there are new modes at which things sort of vibrate in unison much more slowly. And that's a quintessentially complex systems kind of phenomenon. And it's that buildup from small scales to big scales that gives some looseness to the system as a whole and lets us be so bad at coordinating and predicting the future. So I think there's a, a ripe area for understanding better this connection between the predictability of the micro scale and the loosey-goosiness of our macroscopic world. So on the loosey-goosey macroscopic, I have to turn to Jeffrey. And, uh, <laughs> and that is, because this is very interesting, that the thing that most of us care about are how long are we going to live? How long could we live, right? If we did all the right things, we didn't eat butter, didn't smoke, didn't drink beer, apparently this morning I read that. Um, but there's also the longevity of civilization itself, right? And for most working people, how long their company is going to be around. And these are all things that you've studied. Uh, they have exactly that characteristic that Sean is describing. Just comment a little bit on the timescales of the things that we care most about in some sense, how long we live, how long a company lives, and, and et cetera. Sure, yes, yes. So uh, I think Sean said it very well, articulated very well, the, uh, um, this uh, aspect of complex systems, that there are these multiple scales from the microscopic, I mean, in biology, from the molecular complex molecule timescales, all the way up to um, lifespans that are 
years, hundreds of years sometimes, um, to ecological systems and so forth. And uh, what is remarkable actually is because everything co-evolved um, and um, there's been this sort of continuous feedback to um, in a certain sense move loosely speaking towards optimizing various things in a very kind of coarse-grained way. Um, all of these timescales, which seem so disparate, actually are interrelated in some way. And they scale, as I said earlier, in a, in a, in a, in a rather regular way and remarkably, remarkably so. So that, um, just to take off a little bit from what Sean said, indeed, you can't predict uh, with precision anything individually that's going to happen, but you can predict and put into a mathematical framework sort of the structure of these time scales and, uh, and make sort of very coarse grain predictions. So having said that, going back to your, your focus on the ma uh, macroscopic time scales that most of us are interested in, like our lifespan, um, how long uh, the company will live, so to speak, that I, that I work in and so on. Uh, these um, are emergent phenomena from those microscopic timescales. And Sean actually said it in a way, there are these phenomena going along uh, at a microscopic level and, and uh, most of them are entropy producing. I mean, there's collisions between molecules and the inelastic effects take place and so on. Uh, they, there's the analog to friction and viscosity um, in the flows of um, of molecules inside our bodies. And, um, uh, you know, those are happening at microscopic timescales, but you have, you know, Avogadro's number, um, which is you know, a humongous number of these events taking place. And that builds up to these microscopic, macroscopic time, timescales. And what determines ultimately your lifespan is uh, something that really is related to your having co-evolved with everything else, but um, is basically how much energy the, do you allocate towards repairing the damage that is occurring through all of this? And uh, that's an evolutionary question. And um, it's, it's pretty much balanced with another thing that comes in, which is intimately related, is how many offspring are you gonna produce? Because you have to live long enough to produce, in our case, in our natural state, 10 or 12 offspring, um, of which maybe six or seven survive, and so on and so forth with each organism. And so these are all interrelated in, in this marvelous way. Um, now, similar things happen in companies. I mean, one of the questions that uh, got me interested in social organization was that um, um, all cities pretty much survive. I mean, we of course know cities that have disappeared Many ancient cities disappeared, but most modern cities, modern meaning in the many last many hundreds of years, persist. Um, in fact, a horrible thing to say, but we've dropped two atom bombs on big cities, and 25 years later, they're functioning again. So it's extremely difficult to, to kill, so to speak, a city. They're extraordinarily resilient. Um, on the other hand, companies are extraordinarily fragile. Um, it doesn't take very much to lose a TWA or a Lehman Brothers, a little fluctuation of the stock market. And that again is to do with the, to do with the kind of social entropy that is being produced in terms of the functioning of the company. And one, one interesting fact about companies is that, you know, if you have a company 
that is successful. You start a company and you post it on there, you go public, you go on the New York Stock Exchange. You can, on the average, only expect to live for another 10 years. Um, uh, you know, the half-life of a, a publicly traded company in the United States is about 10 years. It's exceedingly unusual that a company survives for more than 50 years or even 100 years, even though you can think of them. But actually, when you start thinking of them, you realize there's, there are, in fact, very few. And all of these are pretty much the same template. It's to do with the, the, the uh, tension between entropy production, which is, and I completely agree with Sean, it's crucial for the functioning of the whole system. Entropy is good in that sense. It's terrible at the individual level because in a very few years, I will be dead because of bloody entropy. Uh, and it's this tension between that and the repair mechanisms. And of course, entropy also has this terrible second order effect that it also um, decreases the effectiveness of my repair mechanisms. So you sort of exponentially uh, fall off the edge of the cliff quite quickly at the time. If I could jump in on that, uh, David, I, one of the things that I think is really interesting what, about what you're talking about, Jeffrey, is some of these mechanisms that sort of uh, create increased sort of pressure, or create increased brittleness within that system in which these companies are, are uh, operating is you, you talked about going public. So which engenders this whole other suite of pressures having to do with uh, cost cutting, having to do with, uh, you know, in growing growth, the constant growth. Um, and so those kinds of changes that a company uh, undergoes kind of pushes it towards the boundaries of its operating position. Things like just-in-time management systems, uh, you know, are trying to decrease the margins, decrease the amount of lag that exists in the system because lag is bad, lag, lag makes us slow. Um, and so by, by trying to uh, push these mechanisms to increase growth or to increase profitability, they're also increasing brittleness. And potentially the energy, it, it's, it's not about the energy that's required to repair. It's about the time that's available to repair. So an organization that is no longer, uh, you know, keeping pace with its competitors or keeping pace with the changing demands of consumers if it recognizes that early, they're able to adapt and change to be able to fit those changing demands. If they fail to recognize that and they're already working at the margins because they've tried to re reduce all this slack, all this lag from the system, then they're more likely to face sudden collapse as opposed to this peaceful decline in which you no longer are relevant to the market. Uh, so I think there's there's something very interesting there around this idea of this tension that we see in society uh, to both kind of optimize on many levels, but also uh, to be able to cope with change and changing dynamics. So this is um, in our world, Laura, that's great. That's, we call that the complexity of vulnerability problem and uh, robustness of vulnerability problem. How do you, reconcile those two requirements and, and it's a fascinating problem. I want to, because we are running out of time, I want to get to what I consider in some sense the existential issue, which is can we think fast enough our way out of an existential crisis? 
I've been very part of what I'm interested in is the time scales for new things to arise, right? So it's a very interesting fact of history of life on Earth that it was much quicker for life to emerge from non-life than for complex life to emerge from simple life. So complexity is the harder problem, actually, technically, meaning, say, multicellular life from single cell life. But there are also interesting issues, for example, I was always fascinated by this fact that, you know, Alan Turing made the first chess computer in 1950. He made the first one. Um, you know, Deep Blue beat, beat the grandmaster chess player, became the best chess player in the world in 1996, 50 years. The Wright brothers make an aircraft in 1903 and we're flying warplanes in the First World War 10 years later. And then we have a space program by the 1950s. Who would have thought that that would have been easier? That is flying, the thing that throughout human history we had aspired to would actually be easier than a chess computer, building a chess computer. And here we are now with climate change and massive inequality as I started and I sort of want to end here because I think that matters. That's why this panel in the end really matters. Um, do we have the time left? What do you all think? Just to comment on this, whether it's humans, humans plus machines, machines on their own, um, time left to sort of reason our way out of the crisis. And uh, do you have confidence in overcoming social inertia, ignorance, stupidity, bigotry and bias <laughs> you know, uh, to actually make progress on problems that are, you know, the next generation will depend upon. So since Jeff, let's take this in the order again that I did before with my adjacencies. Jeffrey, you go first. Well, <laughs> you posed the question. Um, so just to say that, um, you know, the, the issue, just to put, give the background again, the issue is life is accelerating, has been accelerating. And at the same time, the, we've been continuous, continuously expanding the population at an exponential or many times faster than exponential rate. And those have led to this extraordinary critical situation that we're beginning to face, um, uh, so to speak, as we speak. Um, and, uh, and yet we are, and we've sort of haven't said it explicitly, but it was implied, especially in what Zara and Laura were talking about, we're the same brain, basically, as when we started this process 10,000 years ago. So we're the same kind of biology, basically the same brain as 10,000, 100,000 years ago. And yet we have collectively created this accelerating treadmill. And that accelerating treadmill has built into it um, this, this marvelous success um, in increasing standards of quality of life has built into it its own demise because you cannot sustain what is actually faster than exponential growth. So um, that's sort of at the root of a lot of all this. And um, you know, that means that you've got to change something very fundamental and that's probably to do with the interaction culture of human beings, the way we interact and so forth. And, and probably, you know, given you know, enough time, we could do that. But you said it exactly right. Do we have enough time given the state of things at the present? especially, I would say the answer is no, because ultimately the, situ the, the problem is a political problem. It doesn't any longer, I mean, we can supply politicians and policymakers with all of this marvelous 
background and great insights and so on. But in the end, it's, it's politics and leadership. You know, we need new kinds of leadership in order for major cultural changes to take place to deal with these problems. And uh, I mean, and, and, and in fact, the last several years, especially the rise of, or the re-rising re of authoritarianism and the return to sort of medieval thinking and rejection of science, rejection of facts, as you say, bigotry and so on, things that we never would have thought of even five years, 10 years ago as becoming more and more predominant, not just in the United States, but across the globe. And that's extremely important to recognize. It's not a national problem. It is a global problem. And so, and the problem we have to face in terms of our existence and the whole question, is there an end to socioeconomic time, meaning that this thing is not sustainable? I think given there doesn't seem to be on the horizon a Jesus Christ, a Muhammad, or a Martin Luther King uh, to sort of inspire us all to be uh, to change our terrible ways, um, so to speak. Um, I think it's exceedingly unlikely that uh, we'll be able to do this. So I, I've sadly ended up um, a pessimist. Even well, though I just want to repeat, even though the problem is fundamentally, I believe, soluble. It's not that the problem isn't so. So therefore, it changes the focus. Yes, good. Yeah. I Well, I just speaking as a friend of Jeffrey's, I know he's not a pessimist fundamentally. And so and uh, but Zara, actually, one of the things, of course, that's been said rightly or wrongly is that space, it certainly was during the Apollo program. It seemed on the one hand such a waste of money, but on the other hand, it was very aspirational and it suggested that humans, if they work together, could do extraordinary things. And I, I am wondering, is there some inspiration and what are your thoughts on that? Are, is, are we doomed or could perhaps something that's going on now, our interest in the outer planets, just re revive our interest in our own planet? So one word answer, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that we can think fast enough. I think we is not just I and or my lifetime, but many lifetimes um, that are synchronous, but then also uh, coming after me um, and those that came before me. So also building on history. Uh, Jeffrey's description of what has survived, he said cities, gave us some examples of cities and companies and, and ones that don't. Those cities, are people, people survive. Those companies are people, people survive. So those are two ways that I think the answer is yes. Um, and as far as, yes, space exploration, um, it's always very interesting to see and hear public comments on the programs. It's uh, of course can always, the a monetary amount that goes to space exploration can be broken down and said, well, it could be used for this and it could be used for that, things that are uh, cl closer to human survival needs. But looking at space exploration as an example of something that inspires, I'd say that in the 21st century, we now have examples that give more people the opportunity to understand the complexities of time and who knows, you know, in the next decade, the next 40, 50 years, the conversation about time, there are more people that can speak about time's arrows and the past being the present and the present, being, you know, 
at, at that level, um, I, I think that we could get, we will get there. Thank you, Zara. Actually, for someone who's contributed, I think significantly to increasing awareness of Time Zero in the public and in society at large, Sean, um, what's your view on this topic? Well, I don't think I'm either a pessimist or an optimist here because I'm literally extremely uncertain uh, about this big question of, of the future of the human race for, for two main reasons. One is just the obvious reason that the situation is completely unprecedented. We're in a very different position now as a society, as a technology, as individuals than has ever happened before in the memory or, or historical knowledge of, of human beings. So just epistemic humility would suggest to us that uh, we shouldn't draw too many firm conclusions. But the other one is that um, I mean, along similar lines, things are changing very rapidly. That's part of why we're in an unprecedented situation. And those things that are changing, some of them are good and some of them are bad. I mean, even Jeffrey said, well, our brains aren't changing that much, but they kind of are because you know, we can think about embodied cognition. We can count our cell phones and our computers as part of our brains, right? And so there are good things happening and bad things happening. And in some very crude sense, they're characterized by exponentially fast changes, uh, exponentially fast in the technical sense. That doesn't mean fast. It just it does means, you know, eat to some power. And the natural uncertainties are in the exponent there. Uh, we don't know which things are going to change faster, the good things or the bad things. We don't know whether our capabilities and capacities and judgment will keep up with the threats of climate change and bigotry and other ways we can destroy ourselves. So I don't know whether I'm a pessimist or, or an optimist here. And given that the question is as significant as the ultimate survival of the human race, I think the fact that we don't know with high confidence what the answer is, is extremely concerning to us. Can, can I interject briefly one thing, David? Just yeah. that I, 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 I was, I think what you were, I interpreted the question as not survival of the human race, so to speak, but survival of the socioeconomic system, kind of system that we have evolved on the planet in the last couple of hundred years. That's what I was thinking, you know, can, can this kind of marvelous, you know, all these marvelous things that we're able to create and the kinds of lives we lead, can that actually persist for this, the 10 billion people that are gonna be on the planet soon? That's, that's how I interpreted it. Rather, I, I have no question, frankly, I, I actually, I think, except for maybe dropping bombs on each other, I think the race quote, whatever that may mean, human beings will survive. I'm not so concerned biologically, but uh, they won't be living like us necessarily. That's the way I- yeah, I mean, it's not a yes, no question. I agree. There's a big continuum of ways that things exactly. go really bad without us literally killing yeah, Exactly. So, so that was the, yeah, so yeah. exactly. So Laura, <laughs> you get the final word on this topic of these great uncertainties. We've covered everything as quickly as we could. And we've really pushed this idea that we need new conceptions of time, um, that the old ones are not good enough for us. We have to think about them differently at multiple scales and so forth. And here you are working on these technologies that we're so dependent on and actually so worried about. Do you have some final thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I want, I want, despite evidence to the contrary, I want to believe in humanity, um, and I believe in you know the 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 
enhance capabilities, the ways we've been able to innovate as a society, that this will be part of, uh, you know, what will help us to be able to cope with these problems and the acceleration of these problems over time. I, I even though I work in the, you know, in, in technology, in the, in the software industry, I don't believe that is the, the answer. Technology is not going to save us. There are aspects of human cooperation, of reciprocity, of ways of organizing, of sharing resources um, and distributing resources that are necessary to be able to survive as a species and to be able to innovate. I mean, if we look at the space station itself, it is a model of cooperation of shared resources in, in the spirit of uh, innovation and of an enhancement of human capabilities. I think what, to me, what this conversation really uh, opens up the door to is if we are talking about off planet uh, habitation, who we send first matters, really matters, because the values that they have around cooperation, around, uh, you know, uh, building and furthering the future uh, is going to get replicated in who we send next and is going to, to inform and influence how those kinds of civilizations, those kinds of cities and those kinds of innovation centers uh, actually e expand and, and, and grow. Uh, which will have a direct impact on our capabilities here on Earth to cope with our problems. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you very much to all of my colleagues as well. Well, thank you all very much. Um, round of applause for, I mean, I know you can't really do it with Zoom rubbish, but I will. <laughs> so, and, uh, and I know now that we're going to open it up to some questions. I, uh, Caitlin, do you want or Nick jump in and help us with this? I'm not quite sure how you want to run that. So um, this has been an extremely compelling conversation. It has generated a lot of questions. We have some that are specifically uh, oriented towards Sean, some to Jeffrey, and then many that, that sort of cross-cut the diversity of the panelists represented. So where would you like to start? I'll just send you a message with a list of questions. Yeah, or Kate, and I'd be very happy for you to pick the ones that you found most interesting. Hmm, there are so many good ones. Um, there is a question about uh, how our... <laughs> Um, how our, our experience of the pandemic has sort of changed our understanding of resilience. And I know that people in this panel have thought about that a lot, but there's a question, how has the pandemic impacted complex systems resilience and our capability to turn toward urgent matters? Zara, would you like to jump in on that? Uh, that's very polite of you. I, I thought you might have something more on the tip of your tongue, but I can certainly take it. I, um, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, so one of the things that I think is uh, what the pandemic has done is uh, has actually shown us uh, what the our ability to adapt as humans and our ability to not only adapt but to sustain operations, to sustain life, to sustain you know society um, in spite Hi. of unprecedented Hi. challenges. Uh, and I think yeah. we have someone whose uh, volume is on. Um, and so I think that that is the the that has been uh, both a collection uh, or a, a, it speaks to the the capabilities that we've been able to develop in our technologies, but also to the capabilities of humans to be able to adapt, to be able to fill the gaps between the world that we thought we were deploying these technologies into 
and the world as it exists um, to make that a very smooth trend or well, a relatively smooth transition um, and to sustain, uh, sustain performance uh, in spite of the pandemic. So the, what immediately came to my mind is that the pen, through the pandemic, as it goes on, we have shown resilience. I mean, we are here, we came together, um, all the persons that are present um, that I know are there, but I can't see. The length of what we've experienced though, um, I, I think we only have a sense of some of the fractures that the pandemic has elevated. And I'm very interested in finding what comes in the next few years when more is visibilized uh, as far as like, well, the splinters and the fractures go. So we appear resilient, uh, but a sudden requirement for a dependence on technology communication, I mean, we haven't had something on this scale before. We've had adopters of technology growing into large groups that have adopted technology at the same time that others are cut off from technology, don't have access to some and do have access to other types of technology. But the pandemic has made people reliant on communication technology again in a way that, that has not happened before. And while I'm glad that we've shown resilience, um, like I, I feel a bit, I mean, a little fearful to find out how, how um, much resilience we lack um, in parts of our world to deal with this. I would just jump in and make an obvious to, to build on that. Um, Cause obviously at SFI, we spent a lot of time working on this problem. And one of the obvious and perhaps surprising things was the huge discrepancy in the timescales of scientific interventions and social change. And the persistence of ignorance, quite frankly, um, at, that's prolonging the pandemic. And I think that gets to some of our early conversations of maybe to your point, Laura, this is not a ton, we can't solve these problems technologically. Because even if you have technological fixes, if, if society is not evolving on a comparable time scale, there's, no, there's just no chance. So those discrepancies are really key. Did Jeffrey or Sean want to want to jump in, or should I move to another question? No, no. I mean, just I think it's been said. I mean, it's been a mixed bag, right? I mean, the technology has been fantastic. The development of the vaccine was extraordinary. Um, it's obviously very effective, but the uh, counter forces have also been extraordinary. I mean, shocked many of us. Um, the sort of expression of ignorance and rejection, and um, half-truths, lies, you know, this has been very distressing um, uh, on a scale that we did not, that many of us anyway, I think, uh, did not expect. And, and, and just one last comment, um, you know, it, 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 this pandemic was not an existential threat. It's not like the existential threat of this speeding up the pace of life and global warming or global climate change and so on. And, um, I do fear for the um, relatively slow rate of change 
of the culture and of society in responding to uh, an existential threat. I mean, we, we, we've evolved, the only existential threats we've evolved to respond to are wars. I mean, you know, people attacking you physically, it's very primitive. And somehow these more abstract things like climate change or even something as that, that is not quite so abstract like a pandemic, very hard for, for many of us to really appreciate as being something that is actually um, a, a very serious threat and in some cases, a truly existential threat. So that's it. Okay, so I'm gonna to switch to a question I find very interesting about synchronicity. Um, so the question goes as follows. Our rapid information age has ushered in a period of global synchronous history, but for most of human ex existence, history has been asynchronous. So what impacts does this have and which is healthier for humans? Do you know, I wonder what the interpretation of this term is. I mean, I know I have a sense of what synchronous means, but is it that is the idea that now everything is happening sort of almost simultaneously in different parts of the globe, whereas before it was, of course, up until very recently, everything, everything was localized, so to speak. I mean, even the concept of a world war was obviously Europe, European centric. Um, it wasn't synchronous. It wasn't happening, um, you know, in other parts of the globe. So as I assume that's what it means. That was my understanding as well. And I think it sort of cross cuts with the conversation that we had earlier about information and the speed at which information sort of changes pace. And so I wonder if that's kind of an effort or an, an, a way to get in to this very large question. Yeah, I was curious about this idea of like healthy, of what does it mean to be healthy? Because what, what struck me is very much along those lines of information, of like information overload, of uh, synchronous uh, activity because of the technologies that we have doesn't just mean one synchronous activity. It means multiple lines of activity happening concurrently because we have those capabilities. So from a uh, health perspective in the sense of, you know, is, is this um, cognitively uh, demanding? Yes. Is this uh, helpful for productive work, productive conversation, productive interactions? Maybe not. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about that idea of like whether this is, is healthy. Uh, is that a personal health or a societal health? I can jump in with something a bit nerdy on this because there's a very famous theorem due to Manfred Eigen, who won the Nobel Prize for high-speed chemistry, called the error threshold. It's a very well-known phase transition in our community. And this is a phase transition where you essentially, if information is changing too quickly, you can no longer adapt. Because Darwin famously, if you remember in The Origin of Species, talks about the tangled bank, that the world of great diversity and evolution by and large consists in local adaptation to a variety of niches. If the information is global and changing fast, you can prove mathematically that the adaptive landscape collapses and all solutions diffuse in some space. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like melting, melting, or turning, or actually even better, vaporizing. It's almost as if you're turning something into a gas. And so there, there is actually a theorem that says that this could be a real problem that if information changed too quickly, there would be just no prospect of any local agent adapting. 
uh, to it. Okay, I have a question that is primarily directed to Sean, but perhaps you can all touch upon it. Um, looking at time as an arrow, as a byproduct, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at, <laughs> looking at time as an arrow as a byproduct of ever-increasing entropy seems like time is fundamental concept of reality, but are there laws of physics that point toward the possibility that time is an emergent phenomenon? Yes, that's the short answer. Um, you know, we don't know what phenomena are emergent and which are fundamental. You know, we, in science, we're looking for and understanding the most fundamental things, but we make progress on that, right? And yesterday's fundamental thing might not be tomorrow's. Um, space, I think, is almost certainly not fundamental, but time has a chance to be. You know, I think that in our current best theories of the universe, time is fundamental, but there's certainly very sensible directions of research in which it's not, you know, if, and it goes back to, to bring this down to earth a little bit um, to the question of clocks that, that David introduced a, a while ago. Um, what do you mean by time? You know, one cheeky way of defining it is it's what clocks measure. And maybe that's all it is. I mean, maybe time is nothing more than a collection of correlations between things we call clocks and other things in the universe. And when quantum mechanics is into the game, uh, you can imagine that that's literally all that there is. There's one quantum state of the universe. It is unchanging. There is no sense of which is evolving in time, but it contains superpositions of different possible configurations of the universe. And in those different parts of the superposition, the clocks are reading different things and the rest of the universe is doing something different. So yeah, that's completely on the table, but we just honestly don't know right now. No one else wants to take a stab at emergent time? <laughs> Probably not. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I think this was a question asked, I assume, at the fundamental level, and Sean answered it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things that um, has come out of, of course, uh, modern sort of quantum field theory and string theory and cosmological theories. Um, and it does beg the question as to what is the role of this idea of time and ev the evolution of a system. But of course, if we come down to the messy old world that we live in, um, time, uh, we've already discussed it, uh, time takes on multiple roles, um, everything from you know, what's going on inside your head, uh, such as it is, and uh, all the way to the emergent times of the biosphere, in the emergent times of our social interactions, social networks, and so on. So it's very clear that in the world we live in, there are emergent times. Um, and one of the confusions that we have is, um, you know, we carry around, you know, these kinds of things, and they confuse us because, uh, you know, we think that's somehow absolute, you know, in the Newtonian sense, this is the time, the time. But in fact, it's just one of many times, so to speak, on the, on the world we actually live in, you know, macroscopically. Okay, so there's actually a great question uh, in the chat that kind of speaks to human social systems and specifically when it comes to project management. So perhaps that'll get to this sort of different type of time. And maybe this is a, a question for Zara, but I think that we all probably have thoughts on it. It's a little long, so, so pardon me. 
Could you comment on the importance of division of labor in our experience of time? Adam Smith famously says, this is the key to modern industry and growth. As human society has become more specialized, we have also produced specialists in coordinating the activities of human beings and machines, making sure that they sync. Um, has this become our default experience of time? How does that impact time kind of socially and across those difficult projects, especially maybe as we think about an interplanetary future? Yes, um, just so, can you start, can you repeat the first part of that question again, the entry? Hold on just a second. Can you comment on the importance of the division of labor in our experience of time? Yes, so I'm going to just mention two, two different, or um, two points of entry that come to my mind. Um, with respect to division of labor, I'd want to go down one thread of Taylorism and, and, and factory production time, work relationship, and another thread uh, to pursue with respect to division of labor has to do with distributed cognition, um, human machine teaming, interdependence, cooperation and coordination. The first one uh, talking and thinking about division of labor and Taylorism, while that's only as old as the late 1880s, it certainly is a standard feature of organization infrastructure, division of labor. Um, one thing that doesn't often get circulated about Frederick Taylor and his concept of Taylorism, um, creating division of labor, giving people separate tasks, uh, so that and not blending um, or interrelating them. Um, one thing that gets lost or not often mentioned is that his studies would actually require a couple of years in order to ascertain what was the work that was being done. So the starting point was to understand the work that was being done and then to look for ways in which a person who is shoveling, um, one could be supported in doing that shoveling such that at the end of their time of work, their backs would still be usable by them for their own life. And then of course there was the profit, how to increase the person using a shovel such that the company would make money. And division of labor and Taylorism, I don't believe that has to continue on. I think as we understand um, all of the people, while everything involves human beings, we still have that opportunity to change. Um, and on the second thread into it, I'm, I'd like to hand it to Laura uh, to, to talk about the human. If you're, if you're comfortable with that, Laura, I'd like to hand that, part, that one to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an it's an, an excellent question, um, and and your point is well taken, Zara. Like as we become that that example that you gave of shoveling is a very simple task. It is you know uh, not very specialized skills in the sense of like you know the amount of time it takes to train, so on and so forth. Um, the kinds of complex adaptive systems that we're working in, space exploration, software engineering, uh, you know, nuclear power generation, whatever it is, requires more 
highly specialized skill sets. However, we can't silo those skill sets um, to be able to and still have smooth coordination. Um, when we look at these uh, organizations, they are working within this broader system, which is society. They are working within a broader uh, ecological context, which has its own sort of emergent phenomenon, which can be, uh, you know, anticipated but not completely predicted. Um, and so by specializing, sort of, you know, dividing labor in ways that uh, kind of try to silo experiences, um, those of the workers and of uh, the, the management of that work, uh, we lose, we begin to experience some coordination breakdowns. Um, in order to have smooth coordination at speed and at scale, there has to be a certain degree of common ground of mutual knowledge, shared beliefs, shared uh, assumptions about the work, about the goals, about the priorities, um, and how to sacrifice and shed and adapt those as the conditions degrade, as the conditions evolve. Uh, and so by, by trying to create too much division between um, uh, between different levels of expertise, different roles in an organization or in a society, which has different access to information, different perspectives, different local rationality, David, as you were talking about earlier, um, the, uh, then it becomes much more necessary to have these forums and these mechanisms to be able to bring these multiple divergent perspectives and capabilities together in real time to be able to solve uh, solve these kinds of problems. Um, so while I think that the question was, you know, has this become our default experience of time? Uh, it is perhaps a direction that is, um, the, the cracks are starting to show in the veneer um, of its way of coping with complexity and coping with uh, different timescales in these kinds of systems. I'll just introduce a fun fact. Uh, on this topic, um, which, you, which is um, in 1994, Danny Kahneman, many of you know, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, um, and his colleagues conducted a study from which they derived the concept of the planning fallacy. And not to go into the details of their study, but the basic point is, when asked to predict how long a project would take, groups systematically underestimate the time interval by 30%. Okay, so that means we can all now immediately address it when asked how long a project will take, whatever you think it is, just up it by the appropriate percent. I, I think that actually is a, is a really interesting point in, in this context, in the context of this discussion, because uh, one of these models, this experience of time is implicitly in, in this organizational sense that it is static and that you know, many people, if you say that, they'd say, no, no, it wouldn't be. But if we were thinking about time in these organizations and in these kinds of shared experiences, we would be recognizing it's the dynamic nature of that activity that really matters. It's the ability to replan, the ability to reconfigure, the ability to revise goals and priorities in the face of changing conditions that actually 
uh, determines success or failure in a multitude of, uh, of, of variables. Uh, and so I think that that's sort of this idea that if you have a good plan or you have a good system to be able to define all of the kinds of scenarios that you might encounter, that you will have safety or you will have success. But if the world is changing, if we are constantly living in this dynamic adaptive universe, as Dave Wood says, uh, then it's our ability to adjust in real time that matters, not the, not the quality of the plan to begin with. There's also, there's a um, difficulty in David's proposal about the 30%, which is Hofstadter's law, which I'm sure you know. Douglas Hofstadter's law says that it always takes longer than you think, even when you take into account Hofstadter's law. <laughs> so there's a recursive problem that we're never gonna get out of here. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our limited time on this discussion of complex time. Um, I wanna thank all of our panelists for contributing their expertise and uh, background to what is a very difficult question. So thank you, David, Jeffrey, Sean, Zara, and Laura. Uh, thanks again to the New School Policy and Design for Outer Space for co-hosting this presentation with the Interplanetary Project. And thank you to all of our audience who gave us your precious time this morning or afternoon, wherever you are. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks everyone. everyone.